Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I'm partly Irish. That doesn't really make a difference, but... Um, who's Irish and lives in your backyard? Patio furniture. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Ransom Riggs, best-selling author of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, kind of like our show. And coming up, director Errol Morris, A Big Cheese for the Big Cheese, 4,000 Years of Food History with Lewis Lapham, and The War on Drugs. But first, small talk. So, Brendan, yeah. the headlines this week for me were all about blazes of diminishing size. Mm, sounds like my past relationships there. I'm very sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's too bad. First off, there's the blazing heat wave, obviously, engulfing a big chunk of the country. It's uh, terrible. Yeah. You can't even go into a pool in some parts of this country without being cooked sous vide. <laughs> It would be cooked perfectly. It's actually so hot you can't cook an egg on a sidewalk because it would just burn immediately, just be incinerated. (laughs) Disappear. Uh, There's the smaller but still terrible blaze that destroyed a sewage plant in New York City, flooded the beaches with pollution. Just in time for the heat wave, no swimming. Sorry about that, New York. Irony one, New York zero. And finally, there's the surprisingly small fire burning under the butts of the folks in Congress as they keep debating over raising the federal debt limit. Well, you think might, that would be bigger? Yeah, it might grow large enough to burn down our entire economy, though. Oh. So, yeah, just keep an eye on that story. One can hope. <laughs> anyway, for some less overheated news stories, we turn, as always, to our friends at the public radio show, Marketplace. Patty Hirsch, senior editor for Marketplace, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to talk about this poor, unfortunate guy who had a Google account and went to check his mail one day and find that his entire Google account had been erased. Seven years of history on Google, correspondence, documents, the whole nine yards, no trace. Did he contact Google? He did, and they were extremely unhelpful. In fact, they haven't been helpful at all. You know, actually, erasing seven years of your life isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know? Maybe this is like Google time travel, let you go back in time and fix mistakes and make better investments. Yeah, that's Google plus plus, right? (laughs) Google Minus. Ethan Lindsay, producer of the Marketplace Morning Report. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? There's a chain of hotels, the Crown Plaza. They're um, hiring snore patrols to come check on noisy sleepers. They, like, roust you out of bed or something? They're going to walk floor by floor, listening for egregious snores, knock on doors, and tell them to quiet down. That is, like, the worst part-time job I can imagine. What do you do for a living? I uh, wake people up who have paid to sleep. I perform the same job that a little tap on your nose does. <laughs> Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter for Marketplace. What's your story? Well, Brendan, I think you might have to cancel your trip to Cornwall. <laughs> to Cornwall? Yeah. I didn't know I was going. Yeah, there's a beach town in the British county of Cornwall. They've launched this no-nonsense campaign. Uh-huh. So they're cracking down on drinking, and um, they confiscated a man's mankini. You can no longer wear a mankini. <laughs> so a mankini is like that male bathing suit thong that Borat made famous, right? Slingshot. <laughs> Looks a little bit like a slingshot. Well, I'm glad you told me before I packed, because that was taking up all this room, uh in the coin pocket of my jeans. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's like history's the Earth's surface, but instead of water, 70.9% of it is covered with booze. 
It's a beautiful planet. <laughs> uh, first, the history. This week back in 1801, the oddest political gift in history was created. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Thomas Jefferson's biggest fans were cheesemakers, specifically Baptists in the cheesemaking town of Cheshire, Massachusetts. See, in New England, Baptists were a tiny minority with no political power. So Jefferson's belief that church and state should be separate sounded great to them. In fact, when Jefferson won the presidency, the Cheshire Baptists were so elated, they decided to make their hero a gift. In July 1801, they began work on a gigantic wheel of cheese. Four feet tall, 15 inches thick, the thing weighed over 1,200 pounds. It was too heavy for a wagon, so they had to wait till winter to haul it to Washington, D.C. on a sled. And when it arrived on New Year's Day, Jefferson called it, quote, the greatest cheese that was ever put to press. It wasn't the greatest for long, though. 30 years later, a New Yorker bestowed a 1,400-pound cheese upon President Andrew Jackson, who set it up in the White House and invited the general public to come eat it. It was gone in two hours. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line. The booze. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> I'm on the line with Nancy Thomas. She is the owner of Meze Bistro in Williamstown, Massachusetts, 15 miles up the road from Cheshire. Nancy, what drink did you come up with? And please tell me there's no cheese in it. <laughs> there's no cheese in it, but it will go really well with cheese. Oh, I'm so, intrigued. Tell me more. Well, so we created the Berkshire Local Motive. The Local Motive. And we're going to make this drink in a shaker glass with a local distiller's Berkshire Mountain Distillery bourbon. Okay. And then we added one ounce of an aged apple brandy. And as you know, the cheese was actually made in a cider press. Oh, I, I didn't know that, but now I do. Very cool. And then we have a quarter ounce of maple syrup, a couple of dashes of Peychaud's bitters, which is an American bitters. We're going to add ice to the whole thing, give it a good stir till it's well chilled. And then we like to use a little vintage cocktail glass, which I call a coupe which is like a martini-style glass, but the old-fashioned one. So this is a smaller martini glass? It's a smaller martini glass. Do you think that's appropriate for such a big item that we're <laughs> celebrating? Well, I think the cheese can be mammoth, but I think we have to be cautionary when drinking mm. lots of hard liquor. So, Brendan, I was thinking, considering Michelle Obama's emphasis on healthy eating, yeah. if you sent a big wheel of cheese to the White House, it could be viewed as an assassination attempt, I think. <laughs> that's true, today. that's true. Of course, they could take a wedge out of it and make a hat for Lincoln, which would be cool. <laughs> I had no idea Lincoln was a Packers fan. Oh, yeah. He went to grade school with Brett Favre. That's right. Yeah, yeah I forgot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget us. Our website is dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Errol Morris. His movie, The Fog of War, won the Best Documentary Oscar. Roger Ebert named his first film, Gates of Heaven, one of the greatest movies of all time. And his new film, Tabloid, is in theaters now. Errol, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Tell me how you first heard about the insane story about which this film is made. In the Boston Globe, buried deep inside the paper, the story of dog cloning. A woman has cloned her deceased pit bull, Booger. That's, that's the dog's name. That's the dog's name. Uh, South 
Korean cloning doctors have produced five booger clones. Further buried at the bottom of the story is a suggestion. The woman who had her dogs cloned might be Joyce McKinney, who had been involved in a sex and chain story from 30 years before. That's called burying the lead. Burying the lead indeed. So I look at this and I think, I think there's a story in this. Now, it's not just sex and chains. It's a woman who apparently kidnapped her Mormon missionary boyfriend in England and then had sex with him after chaining him up. So it's even... You're making this sound very, very lurid. Because it is. Perhaps, yes. By this time, the British Isles was on fire with the Joyce McKinney story. That's all that was being talked about in the pubs and taverns. I mean, it had kinky sex, it had religion, it had a beauty queen, kidnap at gunpoint, chains being spread-eagled, it had Mormon missionaries. And there was something in that story for everyone. I mean, I can never understand the public's fascination with my love life. I'm not a movie star. I'm just a person, a human being that was caught in an extraordinary circumstance. And now, the thing that's amazing about this is that this woman is shown very early in the film to be, let's just say, an unreliable register. You can't really trust necessarily anything that she says. And yet, it's surprising how many times I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. People at the time were swayed by her. Did you find yourself swayed at times? Look, I've been involved in putting this movie together for over a year. But if you ask me, do I know what really happened? I'm not being coy here, okay? If you ask me, do I know what really happened, what went down? I do not. And you're talking to a connoisseur of the weird here. The story is just too weird, even for me. I can't tell you who's telling the truth and who's lying. Well, that actually, that doesn't surprise me, because I feel that a lot of your films seem to be about the sort of subjective nature of the truth. No, 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 no. The truth is not subjective. Because we have crazy-ass beliefs about the world doesn't mean the truth is subjective. It means that we believe a lot of things that are just false, self-serving, contrived, ridiculous, absurd. There's a real world out there. She abducted him at gunpoint with a bottle of chloroform and Smith & Wesson handcuffs, or she didn't. Now, people may claim all kinds of crazy-ass things, but that doesn't mean that there's no world out there in which things happen. Well, let me put it this way. I will say that in watching a lot of your films, uh, you know, I'm listening to somebody say some crazy story, and I kind of go, well, they look crazy, and what they're saying is crazy, but does that mean they're lying? There's something about your films that makes me want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it's a nice thing to say. Maybe even makes you want to give me the benefit of the doubt. I like to think that I'm as crazy, at least as crazy as the characters that I've put on film. Unabashedly so. Do you feel some sort of a, a sense of identification with people like Joyce? Yes. That's frightening. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? You would never meet me at a dinner party because I refuse to go to them. <laughs> it's, it's called the Dinner Party Download, the name of the show. I'll make this one exception. That is nice. Why do you not want to go to dinner parties? Who wants to go to dinner parties? I do. It's fun. You eat food and talk to people. I'm eating too much food already. I'm fond of pointing out that one's company, two's a crowd. Uh, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Um, 
Good Lord. I mean, I, um, I've often been fascinated by things that you can't know. You can't know what other people really are thinking. Who's the person that you've interviewed that is maybe the most inscrutable, where you really are like, I have no idea what's going on with this person? Myself. Have you turned the camera on yourself? Kind of, yeah. I think that there's this belief. My brain, what's left of it, is sitting in my skull somewhere. So you'd think I have direct access to it. I could approach my brain and ask various questions and expect reasonable, maybe reliable answers. Well, I just don't think it works that way. I remain, by and large, inscrutable to myself. So, Rico, to think if that story happened today, yeah. the tabloids would have just hacked Joyce McKinney's phone, and that would have been that. The end. <laughs> Actually, if that story had happened a couple of months ago, you mean? Because I think hacking's off the table for the time being. So say. they say. Although we invite hacking on our Facebook page, you can hack into it and pretend you're our friend. We'd really <laughs> appreciate it. Head to Facebook, search Dinner Party Download, and join us. We've heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, food's been around for a while. Yes. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah. You know, long before Rachel Ray and Anthony Bourdain arrived on the scene, you know, people like Homer, Horace, Confucius, Hunter S. Thompson, they were all talking and writing about food. It's, that's interesting. I never thought of Hunter S. Thompson in that company. That'd yeah, be a crazy party. Him, can't picture him in a toga. <laughs> well, I can, actually, but I, I never did. Well, <laughs> you know, another guy where a togo was Cicero. Right. And uh, he said that history is important because not to know what happened before one was born is always to be a child. Is that a quote on your family crest or something? <laughs> How did you know that? I, I got it off a website, uh, the website of Lapham's Quarterly. All right, which is? It's a historical journal that selects one topic and issue and compiles the writing of the world's greatest thinkers on that topic into one gorgeous tome. Mm. It's this pretty cool yeah. thing you may have seen at the bookstore. Well, their new issue is all about food, so I contacted their editor, Lewis Lapham, right. who is, you know, the namesake. follows. <laughs> Surprising, but okay. And, and I asked him what 4,000 years of food history taught him about us. I learned that our appetite is voracious. We will eat almost anything and everything. <laughs> Still, there is the spirit of uh, good feeling and hospitality that comes with the sharing of meals. With the breaking of the bread. With the breaking of the bread, yeah. The, the sharing of the proceeds of the hunt. I mean, in very early societies, that's the beginning of the idea of society as well as moral order. You open your essay with the quote from Cato the Elder. It is a hard matter, my fellow citizens, to argue with the belly since it has no ears. That's true. Of all of all the <laughs> 4,000 years covered, well, why did you choose that quote? I just appealed to me because you cannot uh, deny uh, human hunger. It's the principal motivation of human behavior and desire throughout history. Well, it seems to me that lately media has tapped into that hunger, and now food has almost become fetishized in our culture. Is that one of the reasons you decided to focus on it now? Sure. I mean, it, it, it's become a front-page news. We also are developing a concern about the distinction between industrial food and organic food. There's obviously, a, it's a class distinction as well, because the organic food and the healthier food is more expensive. Yeah. 
But and it's also perhaps a generational distinction, right? On some level. Yes, it is a generational thing. I'm born in 1935. I'm 76, and so I come of age during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Fine dining was something that was done by those few. Americans who were fortunate enough to travel to Paris, yeah, not to England, but to but to France. Certainly not England then. No. <laughs> well, it's interesting. There are a lot of selections in this issue written around that time, post World War II. Um, you have this one wonderful excerpt uh, from something Duke Ellington wrote, where he lists uh, his favorite places to eat while on tour. He says, I have special places marked for special dishes. In Toronto, I get duck orange, and the best fried chicken in the world is in Louisville, Kentucky. I get myself a half dozen chickens and a gallon jar of potato salad so I can feed the, quote, seagulls. You know, the guys who reach over your shoulder. There's a joy in that tone of voice that I rarely see in contemporary food writing. Yes, I mean, there's nothing uh, pretentious in in Ellington's joy and, and, and rejoicing in fine dishes that he finds in different parts of the country. I mean, you, here's a man who's an enthusiastic friend to all things good to eat. But but some of the next generation, it, it becomes more food critic, and mm-hmm. uh, the taste gets more persnickety and refined. One doesn't get the same sense of Joie de vivre. Yeah, joie de vivre. That's that's the right tone. That's the right word. Well, I'm a little concerned that this is so comprehensive and so fascinating that my audience, once reading it, will no longer listen to our food segment. So that that will not. <laughs> no, that it was simply a supplement. Okay, all they, right. <laughs> they will come back to your show renewed. Okay, that, well, that <laughs> strengthened in their curiosity <laughs> and 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 the close attention that they are paying to whatever you're saying. <laughs> Rika, doing that interview helped me discover who I really am as an eater. Oh, so now you know that you are a snob. <laughs> Congrats, dude. <laughs> no, I, I'm not a snob. I'm not a vegan. Not a vegetarian. I think I'm an Ellington. And I'm an enthusiastic friend of all things good to eat. Nice. Such a great philosophy. That's the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. We'd like to give an enthusiastic thanks to Jackson Musker, Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, and Ellen Gettler. We will not eat any of them, however. Speak for yourself. (laughs) And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to and returning from this weekend's dinner party. It's the war on drugs, the band, not, you know, the actual war. The song is called Best Night. Bon appétit.
I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And Brendan, you know, I've become uh, the Huitarian eater. Oh, yeah? What's that? Well, it's where you eat your food with incredible ferocity and take the plate and just... Wow, that's commitment. It's really cleansing.